0: Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would indeed lift our eyes to greater things. Lift our eyes from the things that concern us and occupy us more than they should. To the great things that you have done in Jesus. To the great span of history that you have opened up for us. We pray that you would make that all the more clearer to us this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> As you sit down, if you could uh, be turning back in your Bibles to uh, Luke chapter 21. You'll find that on page 1056. Amongst the things you've handed on the, the way in, there's also a handout. And uh, I'll be referring to that a little later. Now, I had a bit of a go at Christmas cards uh, last week. So uh, this week I thought I'd prove beyond all doubts what a a grumpy old man I'm becoming and have a go this time at Advent calendars. Advent calendars, you may know, are an idea that was imported from Germany in the 19th century along with uh, many other things. Now it seems we're lumbered with them, whether we like it or not. Some might say, I can imagine someone like Jeremy Clarkson saying this, some might say then Advent calendars, a little bit like the European Union, No option for a veto either. I suppose um, Advent calendars are are relatively harmless on the whole. In some ways, it's simply amazing, isn't it, that just how much enjoyment children can get from a snowman or a robin. Wouldn't normally get much enjoyment out of them, but stick them behind a piece of card and get them to open. it. It's amazing, isn't it? But one very bad thing that Advent calendars do in the run-up to Christmas is to get children all over the world thinking about the wrong Advent, I was saying last week that this is the season of Advent when Christians have traditionally focused their thoughts not on Christmas, the, the first Advent, the first coming of the Lord, but on the second Advent, the return of Jesus to judge the world at the end of all things. Uh, and to help us to do that, to help us to focus on that event, uh, what we're doing is we're spending two weeks in this amazing speech of Jesus' that we find here in Luke chapter 21. Now, we're saying last week that, that, that this is a speech that's prompted by a question Uh, You can see it in verse 7. This is what the disciples asked Jesus. When will these things be? And what will be the sign that they're about to happen? They asked this because Jesus has just suggested that the temple that they've been admiring uh, will shortly be a pile of rubble. We also saw, though, that last, last week, that as he answers this question, Jesus wants to lift the eyes of his disciples away from that immediate concern to a much more significant end point in history. Yet, in some ways, we saw that his answer to the when question was uh, also quite simple. His answer was this, the end is not yet And because the end is not yet, don't be surprised then by it. Don't be surprised by by trouble before the end. In particular, don't be surprised by persecution. Be prepared for it. Be ready for it. And use the opportunity. However, in other ways, it's also obvious that Jesus' answer is not at all straightforward. And I cannot really put up the difficult parts of this speech any longer. And I ought to warn you that some of the things that Jesus says here have puzzled and divided Christians ever since they were written down. So with the the passage in front of you, you'll need to judge for yourselves whether I'm along the right lines in the things that I say this morning. But although it's hard, I do think this speech is worth the effort. Because I think we'll see two very important and amazing things this morning. The first is that the end point of history that Jesus has been talking about is absolutely fixed, certain, and guaranteed. And the second follows from it. With that in place, we then have all the motivation that we'll ever need to be careful how we live. So then, first, how does Jesus convince us here that the end is indeed absolutely certain? Well, as we read the chapter carefully, I think we'll find, first of all, that Jesus wants us to know that the end is absolutely certain by seeing the repeated patterns of history. This is our first major point this morning. We can know that the end is certain once we've seen the the, the patterns of history and where we fit in within them. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, well, that Sounds a little bit of a, a hard thing to do. And I guess it would be if the patterns that Jesus were talking about were complicated patterns. But actually, as we will see, they're quite simple patterns. How do we see them? Well, in this passage, uh, we see them first by look at, looking at the two climactic end events, which Jesus describes from verses 20 through to 28 of the chapter. The first of these is that the punishment of Jerusalem. You can see that from uh, 20 to 24. And the second is the coming coming of the Son of Man. The Son of Man coming with power and glory in verses 25 to 28. And I'm going to argue that although Jesus connects those two end events very, very closely together, they are nonetheless separate events. So the first of those events is this, the punishment of Jerusalem. Verse 20, Jesus says, When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies you will know that its desolation is near. Now remember the disciples' question back in verse 7, when will these things happen? What will be the sign that they're about to take place? I remember that they're thinking first and foremost about the temple. Well, what Jesus says here is that the closest he gets to a direct answer to that question. When they see the armies surrounding Jerusalem, then they will know that the end of the city and the end of the temple within it is about to take place. And this is what's going to happen, verse 22. For this is the time of punishment in fulfilment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Now the scriptures are, of course, full of warnings of punishment For unfaithfulness, and we were saying last week that Jesus himself has warned Jerusalem about this coming punishment. As he came into the city, he was warning Jerusalem because it hadn't recognized the time of God's visitation. What Jesus describes here, and did actually come to pass in history, AD 70, will prove those warnings to have been utterly real and credible. And when that happens, the only thing left to do for those who are caught up in it is, verse 21, to flee. To flee to the mountains. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out. Let those in the country not enter the city. With the so-called Arab Spring beginning this, about this time last year, the, the, the news it has recently been full of images, a whole year of images of this kind of fleeing from war and terror. I can think of a very striking photograph of thousands of people crammed into Tripoli Airport, desperate to escape from the war, not a square centimetre of floor to be seen. Or another photograph of a Bangladeshi migrant workers fleeing across the desert. A line of desperate people stretching right to the horizon, desperate to get out. And on such occasions, you do need to travel light, don't you? You need to, tr- to move fast. Uh, pregnant women and nursing mothers, as Jesus mentions in verse 23, that they're not only going to be distressed because of the, the fate of their, their young, they're also going to be at a severe disadvantage when it comes to fleeing quickly. So that was the first end event, an end event that is in fact, already happened The second climactic end event that Jesus describes is in verses 25 to 28. The Son of Man coming with power and glory. There are signs immediately preceding this event too. You can see them there in verse 25. Jesus says, there'll be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what's coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Jesus then describes what's going to happen next using imagery from the Old Testament book of Daniel. He says this, verse 27, At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. That was imagery given to Daniel to describe the moment in history when the suffering and tribulation of the people of God would finally come to an end, when they would be vindicated for their perseverance. So Jesus is talking about a very significant moment in history here, given what he's already said to the disciples. All that suffering and trouble I warned you about, he's saying. All those wars and revolutions, all that persecution you're going to have to face. All those things that have been oppressing you, crushing you down. Well, there's a time coming, certainly coming, when all that will finally, finally come to an end. And I, the Son of Man... I'm coming to put an end to them. When these things begin to take place, says Jesus, verse 28, you will be able to pick yourselves up from your suffering and tribulation. Stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption, your rescue from all these things is drawing near. Now I think as we think about those two events, Punishment of Jerusalem on the one hand, the, the coming of the Son of Man in power and glory on the other, that Jesus wants us to keep them very strongly connected together. That's why he places them side by side like this. And they do describe similar things, don't they? It t- describes times of great distress and anxiety and perplexity. And so much so that people do read. Um, this chapter and conclude that the second description there is actually just another way of describing the first using perhaps uh, slightly more colourful language. However, I think we'll find it if we look closely. Close inspection shows that the events must be separate. Look, for example, very closely with me at the end of verse 24. This is what Jesus says. It's slightly cryptic to begin with, but I think we can make sense of it. He says, Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Jerusalem will remain punished, says Jesus, until something else happens. There's going to be a sequence, in other words. It's going to remain punished until, quote, the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Uh, And if we ignore the... uh, unhelpful paragraph break that we've got in, in our Bibles at the end of verse 24. Remember that the paragraph breaks are not part of the original. If we ignore that, we can see what Jesus means by that expression. It's helpful here, helpful here to know that the, the word Gentile and the word nation are both translating the, the same word underneath. So we could read it like this. Jesus says, Jerusalem will remain punished until the times of the nations are fulfilled. And then Immediately in verse 25, he goes on to describe what that is going to look like. It's going to be a time when, middle of the verse, nations will be in anguish and perplexity. So put that all together, and what we get then is a kind of escalating sequence. First of all, Jerusalem is punished. And then when their time comes, the nations are going to be punished in the same kind of way. One event. And then another event, like it, but greater. Uh, we're familiar with this general principle, I think. Um, on a much smaller scale, uh, businesses will conduct uh, what are called technical demonstrations or tech demos, demonstrations of some new technology to prove that they're, they're viable and credible. There was a, a famous tech demo in San Francisco in 1968 when, among other things, they demonstrated the very first computer mouse it looked um, a bit like a brick. It was enormous. Even less like a mouse than a, than a modern computer mouse. But from that very limited beginning, that very localized beginning, well, now they're everywhere. Now they're a, a global phenomenon. And, I, and in that sense, I guess, at least, they are quite like real mice. Well, it's kind of similar here. The the first event here, the the punishment of Jerusalem, is also a local event. It's a limited event. It's not San Francisco this time, but it's Jerusalem and and Judea. Like a technical demonstration, it shows the the credibility of something else, That something in the future, the, the second event that Jesus describes. We can see that the second event is like it, but it's also clear that this is a Global event with every nation involved. In fact, Jesus goes on to make this completely explicit. Verse thirty-five, he says this about the second event. It will come upon all those who live on the face of the whole earth. The first event the first event that Jesus describes, the punishment of, of Jerusalem, was local and escapable. You can and should flee from it, says Jesus. The second, however, is inescapable. There is no place to flee to. Every nation is affected. And in the end, only those on the side of the Son of Man, aligned with Jesus himself, will be able to stand before him. Now, once we've seen all these things, we can begin to build up the the kind of picture Jesus wants to have about time and history and where we fit into it. And it is, I think, a picture which divides history up into a a sequence of events in two parallel parts. And that's what I've tried to illustrate there on the first page of your handout. The first half of the sequence ends with the punishment of Jerusalem, just as Jesus has described it here, just as happened in real history this marks the end of a sequence of events that began at the start of Jesus' ministry back in Luke chapter 4 when Jesus was proclaiming the year of the Lord's favour to his people for the first time. This is the sequence of events that Luke has been uh, describing and detailing for us in his gospel. As that sequence has come to an end, it's been clear that Jesus, as Jesus enters Jerusalem, this has been nothing less than a visit of the Lord himself to his people. But as Jesus has already said... They did not recognize the time of God's coming to them. And they go on to reject and execute Jesus. And one consequence of that, one consequence of that in the end, is the punishment of the city. The second half of the sequence ends with the other climactic event that Jesus has described here, the coming of the Son of Man in power and glory. This marks the end of a sequence of events that began after the death and resurrection of Jesus with the disciples sent out as witnesses to all the nations. And this is where we fit into the picture. So we look behind us into the past and we see the first sequence of events. And Jesus is trying to persuade us here that having seen all of that, we can be sure that the, the events that are yet to come, his coming in glory, are absolutely certain to happen, even if we don't know precisely when. Well, look at how Jesus puts it in verses 29 to 31. See these things and you'll know what's coming. We can understand this principle too, I think. See them putting up the Christmas aisle in Tesco's or or Sainsbury's and and you know that Christmas is coming. Well, in four or five months' time, anyway. See back-to-back perfume adverts on the TV and you know that Christmas is almost upon you. See your teenage child tidying up their room and you'll know that some sort of request is coming. You can make up your own examples. But this is Jesus' example, verse 29. Look at the fig tree and all the trees, he says. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Now probably Jesus is thinking first of the signs he's just described in verse 25, the signs just before the coming of the Son of Man in glory. See those, says Jesus, and you'll know that the end is right upon you. But the principle also applies more generally. See all of the things that we've been talking about this morning, and you can know something crucial about the future. See God become flesh, as we remember at Christmas. See Jesus visiting his people. See Jesus suffering, betrayed, rejected. See him die on the cross and all the dramatic signs that surround him dying on the cross. They're rather like the signs described here in verse 25 as it happens. See him raised and vindicated. See the punishment of the city that rejected him, a real, well-documented event of history, AD seventy. See, the same message that he proclaimed begin to spread to all the nations of the world. See all these things. And as Jesus says to the disciples in verse 32, even they would see all these things. See, see all these things. And you can be absolutely sure that the Son of Man will come to bring judgment on the nations and vindication for his people. You can be absolutely sure. We have Jesus' word for it. Heaven and earth will pass away, he says, but my words will never pass away. So then, let's let's pause for breath here. And I suspect that many of you may be thinking at this point, well, that was was a bit hard. Uh, I think I prefer the other Advent message, you know, the one with all the snowmen and the robins and the Christmas trees. And yes, it's true, what Jesus says here is quite hard. It is quite subtle. It requires us to to work at it. But you will know as well as I do that that is not unusual in Jesus' teaching. He frequently expects his disciples to work hard at the things he tells them. Their willingness to do that marks them out as different from those who are not his disciples. And I hope you can begin to see the enormous value of working at these things. To have in our possession the secrets of time and history Uncovered for us. Secrets which change everything. I've been pondering uh, this last week as I've been preparing this. Have I got this picture as firmly in my thinking as it should be? Because it's only as if I have that our second point this morning will make any sense at all. You have my word, says Jesus, that the end is absolutely certain. So second, be careful how you live. Verse 34, be careful, says Jesus. Be attentive, be alert, be on your guard. On your guard against what? On your guard, says Jesus, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the anxieties of life. You'll know that our hearts are where our decision-making and where our actions spring from. If our hearts are so to speak, weighed down, it means that they've become insensitive, useless, insensitive to reality, denying all the things that we've been talking about this morning, denying the certainty of the end that, and Jesus is coming again. So what are the kinds of things that, that might suppress our ability to think clearly and to make good decisions? Well, many things, I guess, but, but the ones that Jesus picks out here are these. Dissipation, drunkenness. And anxiety. Sounds a bit like a typical British Christmas, doesn't it? Dissipation is revelry. The kinds of things which, which happen when you are intoxicated. Uh, I've never seen the uh, film The Hangover. I don't really intend to. But, but apparently it, be, it begins with three men waking up after a stag night. To find that they had no memory of what happened the night before. One of them is missing a tooth, Uh, their hotel suite is in disarray, there's a, a baby in one of the cupboards, and there's a tiger in the bathroom. Whatever they were doing, I think we can probably safely call it dissipation. Drunkenness itself, of course, has the same kinds of effects on us, making us insensitive to the realities of life, stopping us from thinking clearly and from making good decisions. In excess, I guess, it's a chemical means of shutting down parts of our brains. It's a a kind of partial, temporary suicide which we impose upon ourselves. And then, of course, there's anxiety. There's worry. There are the cares of life. Up here in Fulwood, we might sniff at the dissipation and drunkenness that no doubt was taking place down in the city centre last night. And yet there are plenty of other things, plenty of other things which can distract us from the realities of the future. Money worries, relationship worries, career worries, worries about our status in the world, worries about getting my sermon done this morning, worries about the next thing, getting that started. We can get so fixated on on such things that the big picture Uh, the big picture of the future that Jesus has made clear to us can begin to disappear from our view. And no doubt there are many other things, similar things, which can cloud our judgment and distract us from the reality of the future Jesus is uncovering for us. I find, for example, that when I get extremely tired, I stop thinking straight he might be the same. Perhaps in the light of this, we should avoid getting like that as much as we should avoid getting drunk Be careful about such things, says Jesus. Be careful, or that future day that I've been talking about, the day of judgment and vindication that is guaranteed, will close on you unexpectedly like a trap. Remember, the day is certain, but we just don't know when it is. And that, I think, is made all... All the more close for us by the possibility that we might die before that day. Uh, You can see that Jesus has already raised this possibility back in verse 16. He's warning the disciples that they might well be put to death before the end. But death is certainly not an escape from that final day. No, it just brings it closer to us. Just in this last year... It's been very sad and sobering as a church family, hasn't it? A a number of instances of death coming so suddenly and unexpectedly. Death too can close on us unexpectedly, like a trap. You see, the world around us is pursuing dissipation and drunkenness and obsessing about one anxiety or another because it wants to forget about the future. It wants to forget about death. And it certainly wants to forget about the future day of judgment. But not so you, says Jesus to his disciples. You need to remember these things. You need a sober head. So that you can see these things clearly ahead of you. Let me put it this way. As you pursue your life. Don't be like a reckless driver, Jesus is saying. Don't be like a drunk driver. Don't drive blind with your windows misted up, with your lights off, or distracted as you fiddle around trying to get the radio to work. Rather, keep your eyes on the road ahead. Look at how Jesus puts it in verse 36. Be always on the watch, he says, and pray. Be always on the watch. Keep in mind everything that we've talked about this morning. Everything about being aware of our our place in time and history. Knowing everything that's happened in the past. Knowing that the end is certain and there's therefore an ever present reality to us. Keep your eyes on the day ahead of you. And pray. It's remarkable. In fact, how many of the prayers in the New Testament are focused on the future? Not least the Lord's prayer, of course, that your kingdom come, we pray. We, we did it this morning. But the prayer Jesus is suggesting here is even more specific. Pray, he says, pray that you will be able to escape all that's about to happen. And that you will be able to stand before the Son of Man on that day. So I'm wondering now how I might build a a real Advent calendar. Uh, Not a countdown to Christmas this time, but a a countdown to this future day of judgment and vindication. Uh, It would have to begin quite a long way in the past, I think. Perhaps around AD 30. Uh, That means, I've calculated, that there will already be 723,000 windows on the calendar. So, you know, we might have some difficulty getting that. On our mantelpiece. The first forty years of the calendar will be filled with some of the events we've talked about this morning. Death and resurrection of Jesus around AD thirty three, end of Jerusalem, AD seventy. And it'll be really important to have those in there because they it's those events that fix for certain what's going to happen later. Now, of course, quite how many windows there will be in total is a mystery. Since we don't know how long it will be to the end I'm not quite sure how I'm going to build the calendar To reflect that But I am pretty sure what would be behind the windows And no it wouldn't be snowmen Or robins Or Christmas trees Or chocolate for that matter What would be behind them Well I could come down every morning and, And one morning open one and find it is The day or I could open a window and find that this is a day when my life is demanded of me, the day of my death. But if not those two things, I think there'll be just three words behind each window. Three words. Watch and pray. And so it would go day after day. Watch and pray. Watch and pray. Watch. And pray, so let 's pray now, and I'm going to pray that the collect or the special prayer to be prayed throughout this season of advent. let's pray together. Almighty God. Give us grace that we may cast away the works of darkness and put upon us the armor of light. Now in this time of this mortal life, in which thy son Jesus Christ came to visit us in great humility. That in the last day, when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the quick and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal through him who liveth and reigneth with thee and the Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen.